0: Hey there, and welcome back. I'm Shayna, your host. I hope everyone had an amazing weekend. We were kind of just homebodies this past weekend, aside from taking the kiddos to the park on Saturday evening. So, today, this case that I'm about to cover involves the death of a child and may be triggering to some listeners, so listener discretion is advised. The case today is about a triple murder that happened in 1966 in Tallahassee, Florida, and remains unsolved as of today. This is about the murder of Robert, Helen, and Joy Sims. It's October 22nd of 1966. Jeanette Sims and her sister Judy are babysitting for locals because there's a Florida State football game going on. Her parents, Robert and Helen Sims, along with their little sister Joy, stayed home. It was a beautiful fall day. Nice cool breeze. Now, Tallahassee was an ideal town, carefree. Parents didn't worry about bad things happening, and the kids would stay out until the streetlights came on. Nobody paid any mind to it. Kids then and there would go as far as their feet would take them. It was the perfect place to raise your children. Robert and his family were relatively new to the area, Robert and his wife Helen originally being from Meridian, Mississippi. Robert was 42 and had received his Ph.D. at Florida State in 1961. Helen, 34, was the first Baptist church secretary. Robert and Helen got married when Helen was only 17 and started a family soon after, Jeanette being their firstborn daughter, followed by Judy, and then Joy was born. The Sims family was a happy family, religious. The children were described as intelligent, very nice, and well-mannered. Their social life was the church that Helen worked in. Robert worked with the State Department of Education. Helen was a fine pianist. Jeanette and Judy were part of the National Honor Society at Leon High School, and Joy was attending Augusta Raw Middle School, just a few blocks from their home at 641 Mural Court, Tallahassee, Florida. One night, on the night of the 22nd, Jeanette, also known as Jenny, returned home after babysitting. It's nearing 11 p.m. She walked into her home as she did a thousand times before. She could hear the TV but her family wasn't huddled around watching it like she had expected. The teapot was on the stove and a cup of coffee on the counter. So she walked around to see where her family was and when she got to the master bedroom, horror would consume her. In that room, she found her father, mother, and sister bound and gagged in pools of blood. Now, Keep in mind, this was a time before 911 was a thing, apparently, and they didn't have an ambulance back then either. So Jenny ran and looked through the phone book and got the number for the local funeral home and called there. RJ Rocky Beavis and his father ran the funeral home at the time. RJ's father was just getting back, and RJ had picked up one phone, and his father picked up the other line at the same time. Jenny had told them they needed to come because something terrible had happened. Both RJ and his father could tell from Jenny's tone of voice that it wasn't good. They loaded up and headed to 641 Mural Court. Upon arriving, both RJ and his father were shocked at what they had seen. RJ, after seeing his father's expression, said that at that moment was when fear had consumed him, and he knew this wouldn't be easy. Robert was found... On the flower patterned bed tied up by rope and was blindfolded with a gunshot wound to the head helen was on the floor so she was also bound and blindfolded had two gunshot wounds to the head and one in her leg and she had been stabbed and just diagonal of her was 12 year old joy sims tied up blindfolded gunshot to the head and she had been stabbed seven times in the stomach Her panties had been pulled down around her ankles. Robert and Helen were still alive, breathing but unconscious, and fighting. Unfortunately, Joy had died of her wounds. RJ and his father knew this was a murder scene, so they were mindful not to disturb anything. The police were then contacted. Larry Campbell was deputy sheriff, and it happened to be his 24th birthday, and he was preparing to go to a party when he received the call. At first, he was asking if someone else could cover it because he was headed to his party and the accident was presented as a vehicular accident with one fatality and then it changed to two. Once it had come to his attention that it was a homicide, he dropped the party and responded to the scene. Robert and Helen... Helen was transported to the hospital. Robert died soon after. Um, Helen was actually... um, where she had been shot in the head the bullet had got lodged too far in her brain and they couldn't they couldn't extract the bullet so um, she ended up going into a coma and then dying nine days after robert and sweet joy was removed in a body bag due to something like this never happening in tallahassee up until that point which is quite crazy if you ask me like i feel like crime is all over the place all the time, but Tallahassee had never experienced something like this before, so they weren't sure how to handle it. Robbery was ruled out as a motive almost instantly, and this was due to there not appearing to be anything taken or missing. There was money laying out, jewelry was still in place, seemingly everything was still in place. There was no sign of forced entry, making police assume that the Sims had, one, let their attacker in the house willingly, Or two, they just didn't have the door locked, which was pretty common back in those days. People would leave their doors unlocked all the time. They didn't have the fear of intruders back then. A turf war kind of began around that time when police started showing up because the police and the sheriff's office were separate. They had a discussion of whose case it was and who would be working it. Eventually, the sheriff's office told the police to leave, which they did There were a a lot of things that interfered with the investigation at that time. Seeing as they had never dealt with a case like this before, the scene was contaminated. But not due to, like, negligence, but because detectives genuinely didn't know how to process it. There were people in and out of the house, neighbors were even taking souvenirs. For instance, according to a witness, a neighbor had come in and taken an ashtray, There were also other things that caused issues in the investigation, like detectives putting out cigarettes in the ashtrays in the house, sitting on the furniture, using ungloved hands to open doors and move things. One account even says that the detectives made a pot of coffee, which they say that it's not of negligence, but you would think, like, don't use, like, these people were just Killed, and you're using their coffee pot. I don't know. Anyways, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today. This was the first homicide in Tallahassee for them, and they were undeniably clueless. They suspected that Joy had been molested due to her being the only one who had their undergarments pulled down. This was later rolled out by William Joyce, the Leon County Sheriff at the time. It's so sad. Poor Joy had to sit and watch her parents be brutally attacked and then to endure the physical pain herself and have her life taken. The entire crime is enough to make you queasy, but to think about the turn of events and the fact that a 12-year-old innocent child had to witness any of that, it was heart-wrenching. Anyway, statements from Neighbors say that they remember their mom and dad just watching from their windows as the flash bulbs went off in the Sims yard. And back then, I'm sure a lot of you know, they didn't have the fancy equipment we have today. It was all those old-time cameras they were using to take photos of the crime scene. I actually watched a video of a few of the neighbors just explaining what they saw happen, and one of them said that the sheriff's office came banging on their door and started interrogating them. So, Patricia Wyman explained that the interrogation as one she couldn't even begin to describe. The murder of the Sims family shook the whole town of Tallahassee. Everyone was scrambling to buy guns. They were locking their doors and even adding deadbolts. It's even said, I read it a few times actually, and it was actually in a few of the videos that I watched that covered this case, that women were starting to fill water guns with ammonia due to handguns being sold out, and all the deadbolts were also sold out. So everyone was just like in this you know, citywide panic, and so they were doing everything that they could to kind of protect themselves. The kids weren't allowed outside without supervision, and they stayed with their parents at all times. It had completely changed the town. They even canceled Halloween and for a while they didn't even have a suspect. They scoured the house and yard for evidence, searched the neighborhood, the wooded areas surrounding the house, and even drained a pond located near the house and didn't find anything related to the case. Days had passed since the official investigation had started and the day had come where the funerals were being held. The funerals were held at First Baptist Church. The entire town came. It was the biggest church in the city at the time. Probably still is today. The church was packed to the point of standing room only. Like you didn't have anywhere to sit. So like friends of Joy were there and friends of Judy and Jenny were there. Those poor girls. I can't even imagine. Orphan. So the town was their only support. Robert, Helen, and Joy were buried in Meridian, Mississippi at a little church there back in their hometown. Still, after the funeral, the town was on edge. If they saw a person that they didn't know, they always had that question of, you know, could they have done this? It was hard for everyone to process. They didn't know what to think. For all they knew, it could have been a friend or a neighbor. People they trusted before weren't so easy to trust, which is really sad, but they all went about their day just with a little more caution and awareness. They didn't have a suspect, they were just kind of digging for answers and clues. No matter how far of a reach one explanation was, they were going to follow it. Patricia Wyman had mentioned something in the documentary I was watching. She had said that Captain Baldery had lived up on the corner from her. And he had actually said that they knew who had done it, but they couldn't touch him with a 10 foot pole, which I guess means they're like, like a higher up, uh, maybe a role model for the town or something like that. But that's what she said. He said, so, you know, how I had mentioned that Helen had worked as a secretary at First Baptist Church. Yeah. Okay, so the pastor there was C.A. Roberts. Back then they went by initials. C.A. stood for Cecil Albert. Helen had apparently had some issues with him and according to some reports a lot of women did. C.A. Roberts was something of a remarkable man. He was from Waco, Texas, and he was born October of 1931. He went to Baylor and did a master's, bachelor's, and a PhD at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary at Fort Worth. He got married to his wife in 1953 and moved to Tallahassee and he immediately made an impression because he won the Junior Chamber of Commerce Man of the Year in 63 and then in 64 he won Florida Man of the Year. It's said that he was a spellbinding speaker and people packed his sermon in the morning and would come back that night for more. People looked at him with somewhat of a reverence. So what some found odd is that just days before Robert, Helen, and Joy were murdered, Helen had resigned as church secretary. So rumor had it that she quote unquote, knew too much. And I'm about to tell you why I would say that. The truth came out that Pastor Roberts was an active man in the community. Anyone want to guess what I mean by that? If you said having an affair, you are right. But if you said having an affair with several women, you hit that right on the head. Soon after he was named a suspect, that's when women started calling the Tallahassee Police Station and professing their innocence. It wasn't until they started calling that Larry Campbell put two and two together. They eventually blacklighted his office, which revealed that he was extremely active in there. So when something is blacklighted, it is to find, I'm pretty sure some of you know this, but for those of you that don't, black lighting a room or clothes or bedding, whatever the case may be, it's to help find substance left behind, like bodily fluid, cleaning solvents, things of that nature. And I'm sure you can assume what they found under that black light which meant that Helen had a front row seat to everything that was going on there. This also made citizens think that Helen was one of Pastor Roberts' mistresses, but police and detectives didn't think that at all, and they had found no evidence of that either. Another theory they had was that Roberts had a cult following and that he may have had someone go off The Sims' To cover up his lust for pretty Helen Sims. So that if he had ordered someone to go kill someone. They would have a have, according to some sources. Like not everyone believes that. But according to a lot of like the church people. He, he had like a cult following and he gave orders. And I kind of agree with Patricia Wyman. When she said that in in some ways It doesn't add up, but in other ways, it adds up perfectly. The case is extremely confusing. That being said, that's probably, again, due to the city not having the slightest idea as to how they were to proceed during the initial investigation at the crime scene. On the night of the 22nd, which is the night of the murders, Roberts was at the state football game. He was the team chaplain. He is seen on tape with the team, but the question is, what happened at halftime? He had disappeared for a period of time, but as the second half came around, they spotted him on tape again. So the question at that particular time was, did he have enough time to get there, kill all three of the victims, and get back to the game in time? We will talk about time frames in just a second. So when he came back, some people say that he came back with a different change of clothes on, which wouldn't make him extremely suspicious if that were to be true, but they didn't know if that was true or not. They had no way to prove that. I mean, this very well could have been proven on tape, but this was 1966. Most things were filmed in black and white, so you can't tell a difference unless the colors he was wearing Change dramatically. So, for example, if he showed up in canary yellow in the first half, but then he came back in the second half with like navy blue color on, you could tell the difference in a black and white video, if that makes sense. So, anyways, all in all, Larry Campbell wholeheartedly believed that Roberts was not the one that committed the murders, and this is why. After reports say that he had come back in a different change of clothes, they decided that they were going to test the time frame of him disappearing at halftime and coming back during the second half. So they used a map to look at several routes that could be taken from the stadium to 641 Mural Court. When they timed all of these routes, it was determined that Roberts could not have left at halftime, made it to the Sims, tied them up, blindfolded them and murdered them, leave, change clothes, and then make it back in time for the second half of the game. At that point, Robert was ruled out as a suspect. Nonetheless, the events caused him to resign from his job and leave town as being named a suspect and his secrets being made public left his career in shambles. I'll be back after this short break to dive deeper into the case with you. Okay, I'm back. What makes this case so hard for detectives is not only the fact that the scene was not properly secured, but the fact that the Sims had no enemies. Everyone loved the Sims. No one, not one single person that spoke about them had one bad thing to say about them, which leaves no room to speculate anything. I mean, the Pastor Roberts thing was a stretch even, even given his reputation. So where do they go from there? there was a person of interest, kind of, but not by association to the crime scene. Robert Howell. I could not find anything on this guy to save my life except for a tiny piece of a documentary that I watched called 641 Mural Court, which as a side note is worth the watch. So I'm basically just going to tell you what that told me. So Robert Howell married Peggy Howell in December of 1966, not long after they headed down to Alligator Point from Tallahassee on somewhat of a honeymoon, when according to a letter that was written by Peggy in the 80s that someone had come across, Robert started going off at the mouth in graphic detail how he murdered the Sims. He said he killed joy sims first then helen sims then robert sims and of course peggy wrote that she was horrified i mean who wouldn't be that this was basically just coming out of nowhere and she is basically just letting him talk because she's traumatized by his confession it was reported back then that there were men that used to use the sims murder as a way of scaring their wives into behaving which is disgusting to be honest but they would do this by telling them that they committed the murders and that if they didn't stay in line that they would do the same thing thing to them anyway in this letter that Peggy had written she states that Robert was very violent he would beat her and threaten her and he even threatened to kill her stepson on more than one occasion It even stated that police were involved on several different occasions due to domestic issues, and he seemed to have a very violent temper, especially under the influence of alcohol. And according to Jeremy Mutz, he was known as a bad person and was known to be the way that he was described. At this point, Peggy is so sure that her husband was implicated somehow in this murder That she agrees to go undercover for the police to try and get a true confession. So, police set it up. They place bugs in her house. They get a wire on her, get everything in order, and are ready for Robert to confess. But, it all goes sour. They get nothing. No confession. Somehow, Robert was tipped off by his daughter. So, at this point, police are now only able to question his motive. What reason would Robert Howell have to murder the Sims? Well, the answer to that is what they called Slim. Robert had claimed that he had got into a discussion with Helen Sims at a grocery store, and apparently it was heated. And according to Mr. Howell, he had followed her home and made a note that he was going to kill her. But there was no evidence to substantiate that. So Peggy goes to police officials in Tallahassee with a couple of things. One of these things was a 32 caliber handgun that she had claimed might be the weapon used in the murders. But at this point, police already know that it was a 38 caliber handgun that was used in the murders. Eventually it came down to Robert Howell telling the police that his wife was manic and her doing all this was a way of getting back at him. He was cleared after he took a polygraph test with and he passed it with flying colors. His fingerprints were taken and they did not match any at the crime scene and the gun that was given to them by Peggy didn't match either obviously. The only thing that Robert was guilty of was having a violent attitude Another important person is a boy named Tommy Fulgham. He was 16 years old at the time of the murders, and he was a sophomore at Leon High School. But what caught the police attention was, in 1978, when he was 29 and living in Atlanta, he had committed a horrendous murder. Like, get ready. If you have a weak stomach, just stop listening now, because I promise you, you're not going to hear this. But if you're listening to a true crime podcast like this, you probably do not have a weak stomach. Anyways, moving on. The woman that he had murdered in his apartment had been disemboweled and her hands were cut off. And he had her liver or some other organ in a jar. And it was in like sitting next to him. It was in his possession. Sadly, this woman was his girlfriend. And according to reports, Tommy had a history of psychiatric problems back in Florida. Tommy had told police that he had done that because he thought, if he did it, that Satan would be chained for a thousand years and Satan could no longer be on the earth. And get this, if that wasn't enough, he had befriended a married couple in Atlanta and he had told them that he was worried because he thought he was possessed by the devil. And then he even took it a step further and said that he might be the devil so this guy was obviously obsessed with satanic stuff so anyway the lead detective on tommy's case starts doing a little research and realizes that tommy lived about two blocks away from 641 mural court on october 22nd of 1966. so he starts thinking what was tommy doing on the night that the sims were murdered so he calls up willie meg who at the time was a state attorney and told him that he may have a person of interest here for the Sims case. Well, they kind of dug around and found that Tommy's house was one that police had stopped at to question during the initial investigation of the Sims murders. But when police arrived, Tommy was nowhere to be found. This kind of made them a little suspicious. As Jeremy Mutz stated, you know, no 15-year-old thinks they're going to need an alibi. Further down the line, they had questioned if you of Tommy's friends and even his ex-girlfriend. And it turns out that Tommy had been at a party all night. Tommy had been a good suspect at the time. But he was ruled out due to, of course, his alibi. And his prints didn't match any at the crime scene. Okay. Let's pause for a second. Because this case was so hard for me to wrap my head around. So far... Three potential suspects have been cleared. It wasn't Pastor Roberts. It wasn't Robert Howell. And now Tommy Fulgham has been cleared. I don't know what to think at this point, to be honest. Literally in the middle of researching this, and it's like taking me back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So it's definitely a whirlwind of things happening in this case. I feel like it's a case where there were too many hands in the cookie jar. I can't even imagine being on the force at this time, like during the murders or even now trying to solve it because I feel like they should probably just go back to square one. Everything is a bit scrambled. Anyway, let's keep moving forward. So back in 1987, which is 21 years after the murders, a woman named Mary Fox calls Larry Campbell, who is sheriff now, Mary Fox wants to talk and get some things off of her chest, and Larry is more than happy to have her come in and talk. Mary Charles LaJoy, she liked to be called Charlie, came from a troubled background. She was adopted, and she had described her adoptive parents as being abusive to her, especially her mother. Beating, 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 she stated on the police tape. She said that her mother did it solely because she existed. At the time, Mary had been in junior college and they couldn't keep a roommate with her in her dorm because she would freak out at the small things, which to me would be a sign of something deeper, but I'm not a doctor and I wasn't a detective back then either. She seemed to have an obsession with death. When Larry asked her when that started, she said she believed it started in 1965. Keep in mind that this was one year prior to the murders. She talked to Larry for a good part of six hours on camera. She was saying things along the lines of, what if I did go in that house? What if we did go in that house? One report said that she was always in a state of awe when discussion around funeral business was done. Like that whole um, career choice. It was She was just always in that state of awe. She didn't seem in a state of shock or disgust, but intense interest rather. She had actually visited Beavis's funeral home so much that RJ's father had asked her not to come back. Um, RJ had said that she would break in and steal things like the gowns and then she would sleep in them, which is super creepy. Like, I'm all for like, crime and stuff and examining things, but that's a little, that's a little far. So she talked about how she didn't fit in because she didn't have acceptable clothes when she was a kid. She didn't have friends except for one, Vernon B. Fox Jr. The first time Vernon ever saw Mary, he was in the fifth grade, Mary in the third. Mary was a friend of Vernon's sister, Mary and Vernon became friends in elementary school, and they began a romantic relationship when Mary was still a teenager. Vernon's parents didn't want him hanging around her. Vernon's dad especially didn't care for Mary. Mary's parents felt the same way about Vernon. So there were gaps in when Vernon would be in Tallahassee and when he wouldn't be. This particular time, Mary said that around the 15th of October, the neighbors had seen Vernon peeping in on Joy Sims. Vernon to this day denies this. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think because to be honest, I don't even know what I think. So anyway, Vernon had supposedly said something to Mary about how they wouldn't be able to be together and that they were going to lock him away for the rest of his life. This is something that Vernon denies to this day too. Mary then proceeds to tell Larry on tape that she thinks she went in and committed the murders because she didn't want to lose the only friend she ever had. Mary, in my opinion, was a little out there. Moving forward, Larry was kind of hinting at like a jealousy motive when talking to Mary saying how they had what she didn't. Vernon had her. So why would he want joy? Just things along those lines. Mary semi agreed to what was being said, saying that if Vernon had been out there, you know, looking at Mrs. Sims, you know, he would have something to look at. Then she wouldn't have anything to worry about. But because it was a kid, the Sims could get Vernon in trouble. She even proceeded to call the Sims kids ugly, which I found revolting. Anyway, whew. on the night of the murders, Vernon and Mary had gone to see a movie. According to Mary, she had thought they had stayed for two movies, but she claimed that police said she was wrong. Mary claimed to have gone directly home after the movies, but their stories kept changing. Vernon claims that around 7 p.m. on the 22nd, him and Mary went to the movies. After the movie was over, they went down to a secluded area and had sex in the front seat of Mary's mom's car. But in 1987, when Mary was Talking to police, Mary claimed that her and Vernon were not sexually involved until she turned 19. Now, they are claiming that Mary took Vernon and dropped him off at the corner of Stiles and Gibbs. Vernon got out of the car and started north up Gibbs. Vernon claims that he was about half a block up the road when he saw a car with their bright lights on coming toward him slowly, and that when the car got up to him, they pulled over to him and someone opened the back door almost like they wanted him to get in but someone said that's not him and the door was shut and they took off. At that point Vernon claims to go home, change clothes, make a sandwich, and then go to his room to watch TV. Here's where it gets a little more fishy. A neighbor had claimed that she had seen Vernon on the street wandering and acting a bit strange, making strange gestures, when they began to hear sirens around 11.23 p.m. when the beavises showed up at the Sims house. And at this point, it seems like a game of cat and mouse. They weren't sure if they could take what Mary was saying at face value, or if this was a way of making Vernon look bad because she was upset that she was no longer getting alimony. They had divorced in 1986 and Vernon had given her a house and a car that were both paid for and then in 1987 when the alimony ran out, Mary filed to have the alimony extended which a judge denied. So that would explain why they kind of didn't want to take what Mary was saying at face value because Vernon had always supported Mary. Like it, he made it easy for her while they were married. So it just, that would be one way to make him look bad. The latest news I could find on the Sims case was in 2017 after reading an article from I did it for jody.com where Vernon himself is still maintaining his innocence in the comments of this blog. He is holding tight to his story. No one that has been mentioned in this episode has been charged and or convicted of the murders of Robert Helen and Joy Sims. The case still remains unsolved. If you live in Tallahassee, in 1966 and you remember this horrific crime and have information, please call the Tallahassee Police Department at 850-891-4200. Again, the Police Department is 850-891-4200. Or you can call Tallahassee Crime Stoppers at 850-574-8477. Again, the Crime Stoppers is 850-574-8477. And that's all I have for today. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at Criminal Beauty20 and on Instagram at Criminal BeautyPod.